Will you pray with me as we turn our attention now to God's word? Lord, we just, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, we ask and pray uh, that your spirit would be at work among us today. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each one of us in our faith today. Lord Jesus, that you would speak through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to each one of us in the way that we need to hear it. Lord God, we, we pray for your help and just acknowledge that no good will come from this time apart from your spirit's work. So we pray for it and we ask for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, uh, my family and I were on vacation, not this past week, but the week before. And while we were in the car, uh, we like to listen to audiobooks. So we listened through The Hobbit together as a family. The Hobbit is one of my favorite books. I love that book. So it was super fun to be able to introduce this book to the kids. And there is a, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story um, at all, (laughs) Gandalf is a wizard and he is leading a company of dwarves and a hobbit named Bilbo on this adventure. And there's one part of the story where they're about to enter uh, this forest called Mirkwood, and, and Gandalf is describing all of the, the great dangers and the difficulties that are ahead of them. <clears throat> then they knew Gandalf was going to leave them at the very edge of Mirkwood, and they were filled with despair. But nothing they could say would change his mind. Gandalf had some important business somewhere else that he had to take care of, and so They've got to go on their own. And, and Bilbo asks this question later. Do we really have to go through, groaned the hobbit? Yes, you do, said the wizard. If you want to get to the other side, you must either go through or give up your quest. And I'm not going to allow you to go back now, Mr. Baggins. I am ashamed of you for thinking of it. You have got to look after all these dwarves for me, he laughed. No, no, said Bilbo, I didn't mean that. I meant, is there no way around? There is, if you care to go 200 miles or so out of your way north, and twice that south. But you wouldn't get a safe path even then. There are no safe paths in this part of the world. Gandalf says they could go north into the lands that are thick with goblins and orcs, or they could go south into the lands of the necromancer. But the point is, There are no safe paths in the wild. They all include difficulties, hardships, and various trials. We might long for a safe path, as Bilbo did. I think we do. I think we secretly hope to make it through life unscathed. But there are no safe paths in the wilderness of the fallen world that we're traveling through. Suffering is something that we all face. Paul Tripp rightly points out in his book, Suffering, that we never come to our suffering empty-handed. We bring with us all of our experiences, our expectations, our perspectives, and especially our theology. He writes, what you think about yourself, life, God, and others will profoundly affect the way that you think about, interact with, respond to the difficulty that comes your way. That means that what we bring with us to our suffering can either make it better or worse. 
So it is wise to be equipped with Scripture to help prepare us for the trials that we are going to face in this life. It's never more important than when you're suffering to remember and to hold on to and to preach to yourself the truths of God's Word. Bad theology makes your suffering worse so that we end up troubling our trouble. As Paul Tripp says, bad theology crushes hope when it needs to be bolstered. Bad theology weakens faith when it needs to be strengthened. Bad theology leaves your heart wandering and wandering when it needs to be rooted and at peace. That's why we're studying 1 Peter right now. We want to anchor you in the truth of God's word related to suffering in general, but not just suffering in general, suffering for your faith in particular. Christianity is a life of tremendous and abiding joy. So, for example, we read in Deuteronomy 12, 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord in all you undertake. John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full or complete. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Rejoice. Yet we live in a fallen world, and we're grieved by various trials. Is joy, despite suffering, possible? Or is it just a kind of trick? Do do, do these two things actually fit together, suffering and joy? There's reason for joy even in grievous trials. Let's look at what God's Word says. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter Chapter 1, we're looking at verses 6 through 9 today. Follow along as I read our text. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy and suffering, the Bible often fits these two things together. The Christian life is marked by love, faith, and joy in Christ, even though we suffer in this life. So how can we remain joyful through the various trials that we're going to face? That's the question we want to wrestle with today. And Peter is going to give us three reasons for joy, even in our suffering. The first reason for joy in suffering is the promise of our great future in heaven the promise of our great future in heaven. We rejoice because we know that our suffering is temporary, but our inheritance is secure and forever. Look at verse six again with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. When Peter says, in this, he's pointing back to verses three through five, as Pastor Mark mentioned 
in the opening. That's where we see this sure promise of a great reward in heaven, this glorious future. It's everything that Pastor Mark was preaching about two weeks ago. Verse three, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse four, God is keeping an inheritance for you, one that never, ever perishes, spoils, or fades. Verse five, God is also keeping you for that inheritance. By God's power, you are being guarded. Your faith is being guarded so that you will persevere to the end. The first reason for our joy is this promise of a, of a future kept in heaven for us by God. We have joy, not just because our inheritance is awesome, it is, but also because it's secure. God is making sure that you're gonna make it there. Not only does God keep it for us, he keeps us for it. Peter's saying you can rejoice in this sure promise of a great future even when you're grieved by trials. Not only that, we also rejoice because our suffering is temporary and our inheritance is forever. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you face trials. Peter comforts believers by reminding them that our suffering on earth is limited in duration. Our trials are temporary, but our inheritance is eternal. The Bible says life is short. It's brief. It's like a puff of smoke that vanishes. Did you see it? Psalm 37, 20. The Bible says you're like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Did you see it? The Bible says man is like a breath, a mere breath. Psalm 144.4 and 39.5. Take a breath and exhale. That's it. Short, brief. The duration of this present life is short compared to eternity. You see, time is is relative. If I say that I can run for a long time, I might be thinking of two or three hours. Actually, I think that would be a miracle (laughs) for me. I'd be happy with like 20, 30 minutes. (laughs) If I said I've been married for a long time, I might be thinking of 20 or 30 years. And if we compare our troubles to the troubles that other people go through or to a lifetime on this earth, then our hardship might last a long time. But compared to eternity, compared to the length and greatness of the future that God has planned for you, all the hardships of this life are only for a little while. They're very little indeed. Slight and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits you, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. Now, this is not in any way meant to minimize or trivialize the pain 
of our suffering now. This merely sets it in the right perspective and gives us hope. Peter says we are grieved by various trials. Trials are grievous. They cause us pain and sorrow. Suffering is still painful. Calvin said, the faithful are not logs of wood. (laughs) We're not like a a log of wood that, that doesn't feel anything as it burns. We're not unaffected by trial, untouched by sorrow, unafraid of danger, or unhurt by hardship. There is real grieving and distress. But it's fundamentally different than the experience of those in the world without Christ because of this great future, this sure hope that we have. We don't experience it in the same way. We rejoice because no matter how severe, we know it's not going to last forever. We are grieved. We are grieved by trials. The Bible is honest about suffering, but it's only for a little while. Imagine doing something hard, but knowing that it's short-lived. Imagine you're going you're gonna to go and you're going to clean the sewers, right? Just close your eyes for a second and just imagine this with me. It's wet and it's slimy and it's smelly and it's full of grime and gunk and there are rats crawling all over the place and they keep biting you and it's hard and it's sweaty work this whole time. But the deal is... After cleaning the sewers for a whole day, afterwards you're going on vacation for the rest of your life. Consider the difference that would make in your attitude as you are cleaning the sewers. You could be joyful even in the muck and the mess because you'd be constantly thinking about tomorrow, about what's to come, about what's ahead of you. Are you living with a destination mentality? All of our tribulation is to lift, meant to lift our gaze to heaven with eager expectation. See, our joy is not meant to be based or rooted in the temporary things of this life. Those are not reliable. They're false hopes that are all going to eventually fail. Through our, our suffering, we need to keep an eternal perspective. Our trials grieve us, but there's joy. Genuine faith endures with joy because of an inheritance that is secure and eternal. We have joy in our suffering because we can look beyond it to this great future that awaits us. But we don't just look beyond the hardship to our hope. We also look at God's purposes in hardship and see that God is working them together for our good. The second reason for joy in our suffering is the purposes of our loving God in trials. The purposes of our loving God in trials. One of the first and most common questions that people ask in suffering is why? Why me? Why them? Why now? Why are you allowing this to happen, God? Genuine faith endures with joy because it trusts that God has purpose for our suffering. Look at verses six and seven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, this is a purpose clause, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses suffering to purify our faith and prove that it is real so that it will result in glory when Christ returns. Now, we don't like the idea of having our faith tested, do we? Why should God test my faith? It's real. Why can't he just leave me alone? That's what we think. But Peter says sometimes it's necessary. Who deems it necessary? Not us. God. And in God's providence, he uses not just one, but various kinds of trials. Now, it might seem better to us to separate God from our suffering, to to remove his hand from our hardship and get him off the hook. But there's no real comfort found that way. There's no comfort in suffering at the whim of random forces that are outside of God's control. There's no comfort thinking that God is powerless to do anything and crying out to him for help would be useless. There's, there's no comfort in, in, in thinking that Satan can supersede God's plans for you. The comfort is found in the truth that though we live in a fallen world that is filled with men and devils who wish to do you harm, all the evil that we experience remains under God's power and authority. The fact that God is in control means we never suffer without God working our distresses together for our good. And God has several purposes for our suffering A few weeks ago in our lead group, we looked at 10. I'm only going to mention two that are found in in these verses. God uses suffering to purify and prove that our faith is genuine. Just like gold is purified and proven by fire, our faith is purified and proven by trials. So when gold is purified, it's put into the fire and the impurities rise to the surface so that they can be removed. Like fire purifies gold, Trials purify our faith. Suffering exposes our selfishness and our sin. In our trials, we're we're often angry, impatient, or envious, or demanding, or doubtful, or grumbling, and so on and so on. The, The trials didn't cause these things. The trials bring these things that are already there in our lives to the surface so that God can deal with them. Suffering helps wean us from our attachment to the things of this world. It exposes what's truly dear to us in in ways that are hidden that we cannot see when, when our life is otherwise going well, quote unquote. It exposes the idols that we've been trusting in for our identity, our security, our happiness, and God does this so that we will find these things in him instead. Suffering shows us the futility of placing our hope in the things of this world which are going to fail us. They point our, our, our hearts to hope and trust and love and rejoice in God who will never fail. Suffering destroys the illusion of self-reliance that we have. It reveals this reality that we are dependent on God for life and breadth and everything, Acts 
Acts 17.25. Trials reveal our weakness so that we seek the all-sufficient grace of God. They cause us to cry out to God in ways that are, are deeper and more genuine than maybe we ever have before. God loosens the grip of our hands and our hearts on the here and now, and he produces in us this longing for him and for our heavenly home. So in this way, suffering is kind of like a strange gift. It burns away the false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire. In this way, suffering actually deepens our faith. And this brings us joy. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James one, two through four. Now don't misunderstand. We're not rejoicing because of our pain and suffering. We're rejoicing despite it, despite the suffering, because we know that God is using it to complete the work that he began in us. But he doesn't just, God doesn't just use suffering to purify our faith. He also uses it to prove our faith, to prove it's genuine. People, um, People um, want to buy gold right now, right? We want to invest in gold, uh, so I'm told. And uh, I don't know anything about it. We want to invest in gold. The trouble is, is that there's a lot of fakes out there. Even if it has the, like, you know, the mark of certification, it could still be just gold-plated with a different kind of metal underneath, so the only way to know its true value is to have it authenticated. And there are all these different tests that you can do. I just was learning about this. All these different tests that you can do on gold or this metal to see if it's actually real. In the same way, trials don't make our faith genuine. They prove that it is genuine. So our faith is both purified and proven by God. Or to use a different illustration... Consider the seed that fell on rocky ground. They're the ones, Jesus says, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. Mark 4.17. The trial and tribulation in that case proves that their faith was not genuine. Perseverance through suffering reveals our faith is genuine and it brings a great reward. The focus of verse seven is on the value of genuine faith. Like genuine gold, genuine faith is highly valuable. But Peter says faith is much more valuable than gold, more precious than gold that perishes. <laughs> I was doing some research on gold. Gold is one of the most valuable and also one of the most durable things on the face of the planet because it's so dense, even a tiny amount of it has a great value. And it's growing and it holds its value. Gold is amazing as a metal. It's 95% reflective. That's why it's so shiny and beautiful. But gold also doesn't tarnish or rust because it's one of the most unreactive elements when it comes to liquid or gases. In fact, in order to dissolve this thing, you actually have to put two different acids together in the right combination or it won't dissolve. 
That's why <laughs> you can find gold coins that are a thousand years old at the bottom of the sea in a chest, and they're still in perfect condition. It's amazing. Gold is valuable, and it's durable, it's precious, and it's permanent. It doesn't perish. But Peter says it perishes. It's because he knows that everything is going to perish when Christ returns. The point he's making is, as precious as gold is, genuine faith is far more valuable than gold, more than any earthly treasure, because it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis of verse 7. It's not on the process of testing. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis in verse 7 is on the result of the testing. That faith is proven genuine and it's going to be rewarded. The result is not in question. Why? Because your faith is being guarded by God's power. Verse 5. He's keeping you. Because he's sovereign in our suffering to accomplish his purpose, this confidence in the result gives us joy in our suffering. So while we don't know everything that God is doing in and through our suffering, individually, we don't, we don't even need to figure out all of his purposes. And probably there's more than one purpose. We know that God is using the various trials to purify and prove our faith is genuine. And genuine faith results in praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns. Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or as Peter is going to say in chapter 5, verse 4, God is going to give you the unfading crown of glory. God's going to commend those who had steadfast faith through hardship. That faith is not going to be forgotten, but rewarded because it points to something else. That genuine faith, Faith points to the superior worth of Jesus Christ and it gives him glory. So one of our, God's purposes in our suffering is to prove our faith is genuine so, so that we would have this extraordinary joy of showing and sharing the glory of Jesus Christ. And we know that our suffering is in the hands of a loving God who works all our distresses for good. When we understand the purposes of God in suffering, that's when we can say with the psalmist, I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Well, third, the third reason for joy in suffering is the presence of our invisible Savior with us. The presence of our invisible Savior with us. Genuine faith endures with joy because Jesus walks with us through all of our suffering. Look at verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Think about this for just a second, okay? Think about what Peter is saying about these believers. How can Peter know that this is true of believers that he's never met in churches that he's never visited spread across five Roman provinces. How can he know and say that this is true of them? He, he doesn't ask. He doesn't command it. He says, this is true of you. He's making statements. How can he know that about them? 
Because this is what's true of every genuine Christian. They love Jesus. His character is precious to them. They trust Jesus. They rest their confidence in him, not just for their salvation, but for all that he will do for them. And so they rejoice. They find their satisfaction, their contentment, their peace, their security, their hope in him. Despite their suffering, despite the fact that they can't see Jesus Christ, they love him, they trust him, they rejoice in him. These verses are so Christ-centered. All of this implies a personal relationship with the Lord day by day. They've got this deep, abiding fellowship with Jesus. Peter's point here is not that Christ is absent from his people, but that he's invisibly present with them. And he's present with them in a powerful way to sustain them in their suffering. You see, in our trials, we are especially tempted to feel abandoned by God, to feel forsaken by him. It gets even harder in our sufferings to quote unquote, see Jesus with us. Suffering has a way of taking over our thoughts. And when we fix our, our, our eyes on our problems, we make things worse. We trouble our troubles. The more that we think about our struggles, the scarier and the more overwhelming they look to us. And then the Lord seems to get smaller in both size and power. Suffering fills our thoughts rather than God's power and presence. And as we just saw, suffering exposes the fact that we can't depend on ourselves. So it's devastating to start thinking that God is distant or disinterested or incapable right at the very moment when you need him the most. That's why when we suffer, it's even more important for us to control where we fix our thoughts. More than ever, we need to remember the power and the faithfulness and the steadfast love of the Lord who's always with us. Whenever we send one of our kids into the basement for something, they almost always ask either me or Sarah or one of their siblings a question. They go in the basement and they always ask a question. Can you guess what that question is? Yeah, will you go with me? Right? Or they might say, like, do I have to? And then when I say yes, then they ask, will you come with me? Okay, I get it. The basement is scary to them, right? Even though it's carpeted, it's painted, it's full of toys. I've tried explaining the horror of the dungeon that we called the basement when I was a kid, right? It is concrete, cobwebs everywhere, no carpet, nothing comfortable, no light switch on the wall, just this string hanging out in the middle of a dark room. It's barbaric. You got to like get through the dark to get the light. It's horrible. I'm sure I asked the same question when I was a kid. Will you please go with me? Will you please go with me? That's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that what we want? Psalm 46, David writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart 
of the sea. Thank God he's our refuge, amen? He, he, he is our place of safety and comfort and protection. I was thinking about this verse, an enemy looks so much smaller when you're standing on the top of the battlements of a mighty fortress. Look at how tiny this door is down at the bottom. Imagine you're standing all the way up at the top, on the top of the battlements, puny little soldier on the outside, right? Our enemies look so much smaller, less scary when we're standing on the top of a mighty fortress. Thank God that he's our unfailing strength, amen? Strength, every moment, no matter what we're going through, God is with us to give us strength, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Thank God he's a very present, very present help in trouble, amen? God is not distant or disinterested. He is near. He is actively engaged with you in everything that is happening in your life. What a comfort to know that God is with us. Therefore, we will not fear. That's why David can say that, because he has such confidence in the character and the power of his God who is with him. No matter what happens, even if the mountains are thrown into the heart of the sea, he's not going to be afraid because God, his God, is with us. When we look at the Psalms, the psalmists aren't putting their hope in a set of abstract ideas. Their hope is found in the person of God who is with them, who is powerful. One of the most important truths to preach to ourselves in our suffering is the presence of the Lord with us. Our hope is not in our treatments, strategies, resources. Our hope is not in doctors or lawyers or politicians or family or friends or pastors, even if all those things can help us in some ways. Ultimately, our hope is in God. It rests in the Lord who is always with us. Paul Tripp says it well. He says, you can be stripped of everything in life on which you have depended and not have lost everything because it's impossible for any of God's children, no matter what is going on, to lose him. God graciously gives us everything that we need and what we need most of all is him. Bilbo and the dwarves were filled with despair at the thought of going without Gandalf. Just like Moses at the thought of going without God. But unlike Gandalf, Jesus promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus goes with us every step of the journey. We love Christ because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. We trust Christ because of his, he's reliable in everything that he promises that he's gonna do for us. And joy is the result when we treasure Christ as precious and we trust Christ as reliable. What makes our joy indescribable is that it doesn't depend on our circumstances and its source, Jesus, is unseen. Christian joy doesn't depend on circumstances. It defies them. It depends on Christ. Genuine believers are not crushed by their troubles. We still love Jesus, trust him, rejoice in him. 
Jesus Christ is the source of inexpressible joy because through him we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. There's no guarantee of escaping suffering in this world. In truth, there are no safe paths through the wilderness. What is guaranteed is the outcome of a genuine faith. Our eternal inheritance, our reward when Christ returns, and his presence with us now and forever. Those things give us reason to rejoice even though for a little while we're grieved by various trials. Christians have joy in our suffering because we know that our suffering is temporary, but our inheritance is eternal. Our sufferings serve God's good purposes, and we always have Christ walking with us all the way to heaven. Those things are guaranteed. Those things can never be taken away. Praise God, amen? See how all of that points back to his glory? Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you and and praise you for this text and for the truth that it teaches. And I just pray very simply today that you would anchor our hearts in these truths. God, that you would strengthen our faith in these truths. We thank you for all the promises contained here. Help us to trust them. Help us to rejoice in them. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.